So, well, folks, we have reached the last week of our sermon series, Christmas in July, in which we have been looking at what we can tell about these Christmas stories if we take them out of their temporal context, their holiday season, right, and take a look at them in the light of day, separate them from these trappings that come along with this season and try and figure out what it is about this story that's so important that we tell it every year. What are the authors of these stories trying to tell us about God and Jesus? And it just so happens that this week's reading is kind of boring. Sorry. I mean, you guys have actually heard it before. It's not some random tidbit that you've never heard in your life. And so I apologize up front for letting you down. Uh, But alas, it is what it is. Um, So the two pieces of the story we heard today, uh, the first chunk of it came from the the Annunciation, the angel Gabriel coming to Mary and announcing to her that she's going to be pregnant with and born and bear Jesus. And then that second, that last chunk was when the heavenly host of angels appeared over the shepherds, of course, watching over their flocks by night, etc., etc., Right. So to begin, does anybody remember how Luke, so Luke is one of the two Christmas stories we've got in the Bible. Does anybody remember how Luke starts his second chapter, the beginning of the birth narrative proper? So this is the very beginning of that passage that you always hear for um, nativity plays, for Charlie Brown Christmas. Does anybody remember how it starts? Uh-huh. And do you remember the next, sen- next part of the sentence after that? There was a ruler in Syria. The, and so, yes. And the um, thing that I'm getting to, the action that happens is there is a census taken. Why is that significant? It's actually convenient that we have had all this furor around the 2020 census because it helps us to realize that the census is never and never has been about counting people. It's not about counting people, which right is why the right and the left were both trying so hard to win, right, at the 2020 census thing. It's because it's not just about counting people. Frankly, the only people who care about just counting people for the sake of counting people are statisticians and demographers, and there weren't a whole lot of those in ancient Rome. So in the ancient world, you did a census for precisely two reasons. The first reason to see who was eligible to be conscripted to military service, meaning how large of a fighting force you can have, which matters because that is how you both sustain the empire and how you grow it even further. And then the second reason to take a census, to make sure you are getting every dollar of tax revenue that you can. Make sure nobody's flying under the radar, right? Because, and it's not like these taxes are going to libraries and roads and stuff kind of like ours are. For the most part, these taxes are collected for the very noble purpose of making Caesar really, really rich. 
And so Caesar needs to make sure, right, that we get every single penny that's owed to him so that he can be as rich as possible. So the census The census in the ancient world is about these two motivations, power through military might and money. And by golly, I am so glad that times have changed and that we don't have to worry about these things. Can you imagine a world run by desire for money and power? Oh my gosh, that would be horrible. So I'm so glad we're in modern times instead of ancient. Uh, But so for example, this is why if you think about Uh, For the biblical authors, the second worst thing that King David ever did, besides killing somebody to sleep with his wife, was to take a census. It said that the devil made him do it because it's all about money and power. And it's no coincidence that this is where we start our story in Luke. The empire is making everybody go out of their way. And, and note, it's not like we have this 10-question form that they send us, right, that takes like two minutes to fill out. It's uh, they have to travel at their own expense to other cities. So for Mary and Joseph, this, I mean, that distance would probably be two to four weeks of a trip, right, and meaning they're incurring their own uh, expenses and foregoing income, and they're dirt poor to start with, right, all so that the empire can know better how rich it is, so it can know exactly how much power it's got. It's a method of Caesar exerting control over his subjects, dominance over his subjects. And in the midst of this, we hear Luke telling us, through these angelic messengers, who exactly Jesus is. And this pairing of the census with Jesus' coming is not a coincidence. There's a reason Luke puts them back to back. And to get at why this is, we have to dive into an ancient Roman document. So the Roman Empire, they have this propaganda, right? This stuff that the government puts out trying to get everybody to buy into how great Rome is, right? And so people are surrounded with these messages in all sorts of forms. Some are words and decrees, but there's also coins and there's statues and inscriptions and architecture, just all these things all over the place trying to convince everybody just how great Rome is. It's all over the place. And so take a look at this little tidbit of of Roman propaganda and see if you hear anything that sounds kind of familiar to you. Don't worry if you can't read it at the moment. When everything was falling into disorder, the most divine Caesar restored it. Providence has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving us the emperor, Caesar Augustus, who, being sent to us as savior, has put an end to war and has given all, set all things in order. Having become God-manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. The birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news. Do any elements of this sound familiar? Right? Okay, so let's uh, let's break it down from the top. So, uh, when everything was falling into disorder, the most divine Caesar restored it. 
So notice, Caesar is called divine here. And not only divine, he's seen as the solution to the world falling into chaos. He's savior of the world. He's single-handedly fixed everything that's broken with it, right? Interesting how this compares to the Jewish Messiah, the expectations about the Jewish Messiah, because in those expectations, there was this sense that the God of the Bible would be, well, the world was broken, and so the God of the Bible would step into the world and change things and make them right, to make them how they should be. And this same perspective is applied to both Caesar and Jesus. Providence, the, the protective care of God, has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving us the emperor Caesar Augustus. Right? So the protective care of God has given us Caesar. And not just given us, right? Not just given us, but brought our life to the peak of its perfection, right? This rhetoric, this author is not particularly concerned about uh, moderation uh, or making sure not to exaggerate, let's say. But notice here, God gave us Caesar, which means, right, for goodness sakes, don't go against Caesar. Because, I mean, we already knew he was divine from the last sentence, right? And, but the gods were directly responsible for giving it, him to us. So the best thing that ever could have happened to us. So don't do anything against him, right? And then the emperor, Caesar Augustus, who being sent to us as savior, has put an end to war and has set all things in order. So here we go again with these messianic overtones, right? Um, Caesar is ending all war and making everything right. So a couple things to note here. Did Rome end all war? No. The very existence of the Roman Empire is rooted in war. And the only way that they can expand is through war. And the only way that they can, quote unquote, keep the peace is through war. Right? There's this famous slogan that throughout the Roman Empire that's the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, right? Peace is what Rome claimed to have brought. But well, it kind of seems like it might all just be a farce, right? They brought peace through war. Or maybe if they did have any peace, they had peace because they killed everybody who was against them, so then there was nobody against them left. But nonetheless, Caesar is, of course, the bringer of peace into the world. He solved war. Right? Interesting. This idea of somebody coming to bring peace to earth, of stopping wars ceasing when their reign is fulfilled. Interesting. And then notice this other word that came up. Caesar has sent to us a savior. Has anybody heard this word before? Right, We good church-going folks, we have a great habit of spiritualizing uh, this idea of what a savior is. Uh, but in Greek, in the language of the New Testament, it's really kind of more concrete than that. And, and so the, word, the word's called soter, right? It's soter. So a soter is a deliverer or a liberator. Like, uh, so Caesar was a liberator, a soter, from, who rescued the people from depression and oppression, uh, despair and oppression. <clears throat> And in our Bible reading this morning, the same word, soter, deliverer, liberator, 
was used for Jesus. You've heard this passage before. To you is born this day in the city of David a soter, a liberator. Today the person who was, who will be your liberation was born. Again, exact same language used for both Caesar and Jesus. Having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. So once again, Caesar is now literally a manifestation of God. Right? God in the flesh. Again, does this sound familiar? Right? What does the angel Gabriel tell Mary a couple times? He will be called God's son. God in fleshed. And then Caesar was fitting into these hopes and dreams of all his people that they were yearning for before he came along, which again seems oddly similar to Jesus being called the Messiah. Him taking, as the passage says, the throne of David, taking up that very torch of what the people had been hoping and dreaming for. And that last section of the that propaganda was the birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news. So from the very day of Caesar Augustus's birth, light came into the world. Heard that before? His birth into the world was the burnt turning point of where everything got better. And then this, uh, this Greek word at the end is fascinating. Um, in Greek, it's, it's euangelion. It's, it's literally good news. Um, and so this euangelion is this royal decree that's sent out, that's proclaiming this good news to everybody. And so specifically, it's like when there's a new emperor ascended to the throne or when the emperor graces you with his presence, right? Now, in Christian circles, we like uh, making up new words for things, because why not? So we translate euangelion good news as gospel. And so the angel says to the shepherd, I am bringing you an euangelion, good news. The exact same word that Caesar was using. So do you see what's happening here, right? Rome has this type of language, these particular ways of speaking about itself and its emperor Caesar, and Luke here co-opts them. You intend these phrases to mean one thing? Nah, but we, we're going to take them over and twist them around. They're going to be about Jesus now instead of Caesar. All this language coming from the Roman Empire is this political language, this propaganda, if you will. It's making these claims about this figure, trying to shore up his power. And so when Luke is co-opting this language, it doesn't all of a sudden magically become spiritual. No, when Luke's writing, he's using this politically charged language that Caesar was using to help justify his reign. It's the language of Roman propaganda. It's taking this this ideological core of Rome, the justification that Rome gives itself and others for, for its domination and its brutality. Luke is taking this language that Rome used to legitimize itself and its rule and its conquest and, and, its, and its violence. He's taking that language and twisting it. No, 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 no. You got it all wrong. No. It's not about Caesar's reign. It's about Christ's reign. It's not about patriotism and loyalty to the empire. No, it's about loyalty to the real ruler, God. 
And you can imagine this might not have gone over super well with the Roman Empire, perhaps, right? The, uh, the empire has this veneer of, of nobility, of dignity, of beneficence that papers over the violence at its core. And the, the Roman Empire's whole MO is spreading through conquest, right? It is fundamentally rooted in violence and coercion and domination and slavery and exploitation. But they aren't going to say that, right? Because, of course, they are, you know, helping to civilize the world. You know, they're bringing peace. They're bringing the world to flourish under the magnanimous rule of Caesar. The Roman Empire is progress. It's light. It's justice. It's achievement. It's everything good in the world. So as long as people are saying that about it, Everything's good. Everybody's happy being a part of this amazing empire, right? Nobody who's been conquered is going to rise up and rebel or, or God forbid, withhold their taxes. The people of the empire, under the gracious supervision, of course, of the government itself, they develop this narrative that they tell themselves. And everything is fine as long as everybody's sticking to the script and believing this story that they tell themselves, But as soon as somebody steps out of line, somebody starts questioning if that's the way things really are, then they're trying to burst the illusion. They're a danger to society. And yes, this really would be a danger to the society. So just imagine this. So Rome's state apparatus doesn't actually have all that many people. So I mean, it was big. Don't get me wrong. But if all the subjugated people were to like join together and rise up. If they decided to rise up against the Roman state, the empire is going to be way, 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 way outnumbered, right? And one major way that you keep control in a society that is run by a small oppressive minority is through ideology, is through getting everybody to buy into the narrative that the rulers really are doing the best thing and they're really great and looking out for everybody's best interests and maybe even God's representatives on earth. And that's why, so for example, that's why super repressive regimes often have really tight censorship laws, right? If it gets out that there might be alternative ways of seeing things, of viewing things where maybe the empire isn't, the best thing in the world, where maybe it's not all light and goodness, but kind of rotten down to the core. Well, if the whole thing that's holding up the whole empire is everybody believing in it, then it's real dangerous to have this undercurrent of ideas that are different And so do we see why having this different narrative might be so dangerous? One where the emperor is not the son of God, but Jesus is. Or the emperor is not the deliverer, Jesus is. Or claiming the Roman Empire doesn't really bring peace, but God does. Now, Here's the thing. So the Roman Empire didn't actually feel threatened by any of this stuff, right? The Christians, while they held on to these beliefs, were puny and they didn't care at all about them. 
Um, and then once the Christians got big enough for them to actually care about them, they had kind of just super softened their tone and been like, hey, we love you, empire. Um, so it, look, so they didn't actually get intimidated by it. But regardless of what the empire thought, the Roman empire thought, just put yourself in Luke's shoes. What did he think that he was doing? He's explicitly co-opting this language of empire to say, no, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. He probably thinks he's throwing down the gauntlet, right? He has issued this challenge saying that faithful Christianity is to believe that Jesus is Lord no more, no less. And so for Luke, this message is nothing more, nothing less than a revolution. Even though the powers that be didn't see it that way. And so if Luke was so adamant and outspoken about the implications of calling Jesus Lord and how it fundamentally opposes the violence of empire, doesn't that then kind of call us to think about this as well? In what ways do we also participate in the practices of empire in our modern world? Now, of course, it's changed, right? Of course, empire looks different than it did in the 1800s or in the ancient world, right? It's, it's what we now call neo-colonialism instead of colonialism. Uh, but that doesn't get us off the hook, right? It's, this passage still calls us to consider deeply in what ways do we participate in the forms of empire that exist today? In what ways do we participate in the fundamentally violent establishment of systems and people and states centered around the maintenance of power and wealth and control? And to what degree are we as modern Christians called to come out of empire and create a different, alternative, peaceable reign under the lordship of Jesus as our ultimate source of authority rather than under empire. So this week, may you notice. May you notice in what ways empire is still around us. May you notice in what ways you participate in it. And may you notice what God is calling us to do, we who claim that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. May it be so.